you could please return to your seats, and uh, we're going to have uh, Mr. David Martin is going to read for us our scripture for this morning. Good morning. Our word this morning comes to us from uh, John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The word of the Lord. Thank you. David, would you just join me in prayer again? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for clear, powerful statements about who you are. Uh, I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts so that we would understand you. We would be able to better relate to you personally. We would be able to, to know the sort of relationship that you have for us, the sort of life that you have for us. We would understand better how you've made us and what we are made for, what our purpose is, how we can love you, how we can love others more. Would you grow that in us? Uh, We do thank you so much for this new space. We just pray that you would be blessing uh, this, this space, our time here, and let it be a time and a space that is filled with your spirit, where you are lifted up and your name is honored. In Jesus' name, amen. We are uh, picking up and continuing in a series going through the uh, seven I am statements of Jesus. I I was reminded earlier, it was actually eight, uh, so apologies, we we missed one. There's there's this point Jesus says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. So look it up, there's another one. Uh, But for our purposes, we're still uh, going for the, the seven traditional ones, and, and these I am statements, as we piece them together, we put them together, they form this picture of who was Jesus, who did his disciples believe Jesus was, who is it that we as Christians are worshiping. Now, this week we're looking at Jesus' claim prior to his miraculous work he's about to do, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. There is a 
a futurist by the name of Ray Kurzweil. And he has been predicting for uh, over 15 years now that there is an event called the singularity that he believes is going to happen at some time before the year 2045. I know what you're thinking. Yes, apparently futurist is a valid career option. Uh, so I would hasten to add that, that for those of you who are, who are students and considering, pondering your possible career trajectories, you may not find quite as many job openings uh, as you would perhaps in, in health or technology, but futurist, that's, apparently that is an option. And uh, this event, this singularity event, um, there's a lot of ways of describing it, but essentially it's getting at this idea of some time, the near or distant future, that technology will advance to such a level that artificial intelligence will, will essentially be able to take over its own rate of improvement. Uh, and at that point, that will alter the human landscape, uh, human society in drastic ways. And as you might imagine, there's many different visions of particularly what that might look like. I, I will also add one of the advantages of this job of futurist uh, is that if, at least if you go far enough out, there is zero job security risk to being 100% wrong. So that is, that is one of the advantages. But uh, among these kind of different visions of what this singularity will look like is this idea that human beings will achieve virtual immortality uh, and that you will have some sort of biological system uh, into which you will be able to sort of plug in your mind or plug in your consciousness so that after your body breaks down, you will, just, you will be able to continue on. And there's actually a number of very wealthy people very interested in investing in this sort of technology. And my question, among many, uh, is why? Why is that something that anyone would even be interested in? People would be exploring, investing in, in that sort of idea of, of continuing on kind of within a machine. Right? And the answer really is found uh, in Ecclesiastes. It, it might sound like a rhetorical question, but it's, it's not. Because, I mean, you think about this, this idea of death. Right? And animals, for example, animals are not concerned about their diet and exercise. Right? Um, you know, animals don't want to die. Right? There's a preservation instinct, but that's very different from being bothered existentially by the idea of death. Right? That, that's unique to us as humans. Right? And the answer is Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity into the heart of man. Right, isn't that the case? We all have this longing for a good life that's, that will continue forever. And I think there's two things, a number, but there's two things in particular that exacerbate this feeling of being disturbed by death. One of them is very common uh, in our society today. Right? That's the, the loss, the evaporation, really, of any sort of meaningful, tangible idea of an afterlife. 
right, a life after this one, as long as you don't believe in, or at least you give very little thought to any life after this one, that means that death is going to be a real downer, right? Because that's all you're thinking about. And the other factor, I think, that can really exacerbate this being disturbed by death is the degree to which, at least in human terms, that you are a successful person, right? Because the more successful you are, the more likely you are going to be bothered by death because you can't take it with you. So what's the point? Right? Who cares if you achieve, you reach you know, fortune's wealthiest hundred people, you are going to die just like the, the poor subsistence farmer who ekes out an existence in some corner of the globe. Both of you, same end. Right? And so we're, we're bothered by this. And I, I would suggest that, not that death ever stops being terrible or stops being a tragedy, but as Christians we have tools of understanding this, of finding a relief within the face of that. And, and so as we turn to this passage, I want to look at a few things that are connected with this remarkable statement that Jesus makes. And the first one is, some, we're going to look at some Christian responses to death. And then secondly, we're going to look at, particularly we're going to look at Martha and Mary, but we're going to look at how can we have resurrected life now? Because that's part of what Jesus promises. And then last, we'll go to Jesus' question that he ends with, and that is, do you believe this? Do you believe this statement Jesus makes? To start by looking at a couple Christian responses to death. I, I say Christian, we're looking at Martha and Mary, and we know from this chapter elsewhere in the book of John, they profess Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Okay, So they're effectively Christians. And... Uh, we're going to start in like looking at verse 17 here, if you have the, your Bible in front of you or, or Bible app. So the, the setting here, there's Lazarus, and Lazarus is Jesus' friend. Uh, he's a brother of Martha and Mary, and he's been dead. All right, he's not only been dead, but he has been buried in a tomb for four days. Now, as a spoiler alert, Jesus is actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead which that's pretty remarkable by any standard, but I would say particularly by a four days in a tomb standard. But there's a number of, in this scene here, where Jesus comes and makes this statement, there's a number of Jewish people, they've come from Jerusalem or surrounding area, and they are, as is good practice for God's people, they have come around and they're acting as God's family. They're comforting Martha and Mary, they're consoling them, they're grieving with these women. Martha and Mary, they hear that Jesus is coming. Now, what I want us to notice as you're looking at this text are what I believe are good and godly and healthy responses to death. They're ways of grieving. And these look very different for Martha and for Mary. Martha is very much your kind of type A personality. Right? She's always doing something. She's always got to take action. She's going to take charge, take the next step. And so that's what she does. Or here's Jesus is coming. She goes right to him. Mary, 
uh, a little bit more passive in personality, a little bit more quiet and reflective. Uh, She's going to wait for Jesus to come to there. So two sisters, very, very different people, and Jesus loves them both. It's, It's not in this passage that there's a right way and a wrong way of responding. It's not like here, you know, Mary has more faith, and so, you know, we should be more passive. We should be more like Mary. It's that Jesus loves both of these women, and he's going to respond to both of them in their own ways. Now, this is a side point, but important for us to know that there are as many different ways of grieving as there are different people. That's important for us to understand as, as we may go through hard things or you want to come alongside somebody who is who's grieving or struggling, that, that there's a lot of different ways that that looks like. And it's also noteworthy here, though, as we look at these two women, to note similarities. There are similarities in how they are responding. Both women are grieving. And both of them, in their grief, they're trying to reckon with, they're trying to bring into line their, their grief, their hurt, into and align it with their relationship with Jesus and make sense of it in relationship to Jesus. So both of them here are responding with sadness and with faith. Sadness and faith. And that's, I would suggest, very real. I would think that really this side of eternity, there's not going to be any better way of responding to death, but with sadness and faith. And now we, this side of the cross, we have even more reason for faith, for confidence in Jesus, knowing more of what he does. But So both of these women, they express their sadness, their hurt, their frustration, their disappointment about what has happened to Jesus. And yet they're also wrestling with the fact that, and yet, you're still God. You're you're still the one in control. All life, all power is in your hands, and and they can trust Him. And so they're able to express confusion, even frustration, and at the same time, be holding on to him in faith. That's a really important duality for us to get a hold of in the Christian life. Frustrated, hurt, and and still holding on in faith, knowing he's God, he's going to do what's best. So in both of these interactions from these women, there is some form of, Jesus, you could have stopped this. You, you could have done something. You could have intervened. And yet, there's also some form of, Jesus, I know you're still God. And I trust you. And I worship you. And I love you. And that's how we've got to be reckoning with death. That's how we've got to reckon with any tragedy. Every time there is a rightful sense of God could have stopped that. It was in his power to do that. And yet there's also a sense of, and yet God, I still trust you in this. 
right? At least that's what we want to be moving toward as we deal with grief, as we deal with loss. I want to look now at Jesus' claim, which is the centerpiece of this passage, and put it in a little bit of the context of their conversation. So, verse 23, Jesus is comforting Martha, and he says, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And she says, basically, yes, yes, I know he's going to rise again in the the last day. In other words, yes, I know at this final judgment, this end time, when everybody rises, Lazarus is going to rise again. And this is key because it... This response from Martha is, is driving, is shaping some of the way that Jesus is going to answer here. It's this sort of vague, general hope in the afterlife that Martha has. Now, to be fair, Martha doesn't have the New Testament. And with the Old Testament, Old Testament was just a little bit less explicit about what specifically is going to happen after death. But I think the sad thing The sad thing is how much today we still operate this way. There's kind of this vague general sense of a life after this one that this is going to offer some grain of comfort in those unfortunate few circumstances where I actually have to face death. But for the rest of my life, it's not really any use. And it's, it's this sort of attitude that's shaping the way that Jesus responds in verse 25, where he says, I am... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I think it's worth just trying to soak in that statement for a little bit. Because many of you, you're probably very familiar with this passage, you're familiar with this statement, and so some of the radicalness, right, some of the gravity of what's being said just, just slips us by. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What kind of statement is that? Who, who says something like that? I just try, just think about, don't, don't name names here, just think about the most prideful, most arrogant, biggest megalomaniac you, you can possibly think of. Can you ever imagine that person saying, anyone who believes in me, even if he dies, he'll live again. No one is crazy enough to say something like that. And this is part of what I hope that we're getting as we look at these I am statements week after week. We're putting together this picture of the reason why Christians worship Jesus. We just don't, we don't think he was just like a smart teacher or a really compassionate guy or a good role model. I don't know any good role models that are telling you that if you put your faith in them that you can cheat death. It's not, it's not usually somebody you want to follow if they're saying something like that. Again and again, as we look at these I am statements from Jesus, we find him making just wild, extravagant, over-the-top claims that no one in history has ever made, or at least ever made and had anyone take them seriously. 
I also want us to see, as we're looking at this particular statement, that there are clearly two types of life that Jesus is talking about and he is promising. So in the first sentence you'll see, he's talking about a physical life, a physical consciousness, which is why he's saying, even if you die, you will live again. So there's going to be this death, but that, that won't be the end of your being. Right, but then in his second sentence, he is clearly referring to another sort of life. Because he says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. All right, so clearly we know Jesus cannot be promising that if you believe in him, you're, you will stop the aging process. Right? Or, or that now nothing will be able to hurt you. So what is he saying? When he promises that you will never die. I think that this gets at really one of the larger themes of the whole book of John. I recommend reading the whole book at some point. And that is the theme of what is life? What does it mean to really live? This is one of the big questions that that John is exploring through Jesus. And Jesus is saying that if you believe in him, that you will receive a sort of life, a spiritual vitality, that is going to last eternity unbroken. But not for one second, not for one moment, will your new spiritual life ever stop. There will be no termination, no break, no stop, no starting over again from the life you actually have now and that you're growing in day by day. In fact, the Bible says that we're being renewed day by day and you begin accumulating treasures in heaven that will never suffer loss for eternity. A few years ago, there was... um, there's a movie Pixar put out called Soul. Uh, out of curiosity, how many people, how many people watched that movie? Uh, okay. Um, so I just want to see how you have some sense of what I'm talking about. I, I don't watch as many movies as, as Once Upon a Time. But th- this movie I thought was very interesting because all movies, right, all stories, are dealing with you know, really the big questions. They're dealing with questions about meaning of life. They're dealing with questions about significance. But because in this movie, uh, it's about the main character dying and trying to get back to a life on earth, those questions are very much front and center in the movie. So it's not as subtle. And I I thought that really the movie on the whole was pretty well-balanced, pretty nuanced, because at the end, it took shot even at the idea of living for your passion, right? Living for whatever it is you're most passionate about, which in the case of this character was playing piano in a a jazz band, which that's pretty sacred ground in our Western culture, right? This idea of living for your passion. And so then the answer, though, that it it did kind of leave, it, it did kind of lead us to, is... In, in my sense, probably the deepest answer that we have in a Western secular world, and that is that life, the meaning of life, is about living for today. That's, that's what it's about. Live for each moment. 
Just enjoy the day. Laugh with your friends. Laugh with your family. Soak in the colors and the sounds and the smells. Just enjoy, enjoy, really enjoy a, a, a delicious piece of pizza. And just savor that, that pizza and, and practice this sort of mindfulness. Right, where you are aware of and you are just you're grateful for your moment to moment existence in life. And I think there's a way in which that is really, really close. It's really close. And in, in some ways, it's probably the best that we're going to do without God. Right? But there's another sense that that view of your meaning of life it just completely misses it. It completely falls short. And for the sake of time, I'll just offer one trouble with that. I think you can extrapolate from there. But you think about that philosophy and think about, let's say that you have a really bad day. You're just like a crummy, crummy day. Like you mess up at work, your boss yells at you, your spouse yells at you, your kids are acting up, or your parents are, are giving you trouble, you get stuck in traffic behind like some accident for, for hours, you're, you're put on hold for some terrible customer service for forever. Just you know, a really bad day. I mean, we've all had those days. What do you do with that? I think it's pretty disingenuous to think that anyone... Christian or not, is going to come to an end of a day like that and be particularly happy. But if you are not a Christian, right, and there is no eternity, it is much, much worse. Because that day, that day is one of the very precious few that you have to make the most of. That's it. That's what you're working with. That's what you have got to, to respond to. That's what you've got to enjoy because that's, that's what you have. But if you are a Christian, Jesus is saying to us here that there is a sort of life, a spiritual life that flows from your connection to Him, from your security in eternity, from His Spirit living in you that is untouched entirely by any of those things. In fact, you know... That actually in those things, God is working for your good. That he has a good purpose for you in those things to grow you closer in relationship with him as you go through all that with him. That he's in that. I want to come back to to this idea, but we'll move on to the last point, which is Jesus' question. So as soon as Jesus finishes this astonishing outlandish claim, I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me is not only going to live again, but you're going to have a sort of life now that never ends. And then he, he turns this question back on Martha and on us. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And that, that's the question I want to close us out with. It probably goes without saying that there's different degrees of believing something like that. Right? That you can believe that intellectually. 
My guess is maybe many of you do, that you would, um, to borrow a legal phrase, you would assent to its truth. Or you would say, yes, uh, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe he died for my sins and rose again. I believe the only reason why I have eternal life is I'm trusting in him and not in myself. Many of you would say something like that if I asked you what you believed about Jesus. But I think perhaps the more telling question is what difference, what difference would it make in your life if you really believe that? Right? That if you really believe Jesus gave you eternal life and a real and meaningful sort of life here and now, what would that look like? And this is where it gets a little bit more challenging. I want to take us to one last passage here. This is Hebrews 2.15. You can go there if you like. I'll also read it for us. Hebrews 2.15, I think, gets at a big part of what Jesus wants us to get. right? What he wants us to take away from having this kind of faith, practically. So this is uh, Hebrews 2.15. It's speaking about Jesus' death and resurrection. And it says that Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of the death, power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a really interesting phrase. What would it look like to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Well, it means that you are freed from the lifelong slavery of a fear of death. All right, so how is fear of death a lifelong slavery? I think this goes back to the example I just gave earlier. If death is the end, right, if this is all we get, man, that is heavy. That puts an enormous enslaving pressure on you to live your best life now. Did you, did you really enjoy yesterday? Just think about it. Like, like really? Really? Did you, are you sure you had enough fun yesterday? Because that's one less day, one less weekend day that you got for the rest of this life. I, I mean, there's just an enormous enslaving power that that has. There is an enormous enslaving power that events both good and bad, will have over your life from a fear of death. Your goals, your hopes, your dreams will have an enslaving power over you because this is it. You don't know how much time you've got. Have you done enough? Have you worked hard enough? Have you pushed to get those goals enough? You better make it count. How do you ever say no to yourself? How do you ever exercise compassion or self-control? 
How do you engage in deeds of generosity and kindness that will never be seen if this life is all you get? You see, you're not really free to live your life. You're not going to be free from threats to your welfare or your health or your relationships because you have nothing better and nothing more long-lasting than those things. You have nothing more eternal. It's kind of like, I'm just going to close with this very imperfect example. But let's say that you have two people, right? And they are offered different deals. One guy gets offered uh, an all-inclusive package to Hawaii for one month. Everything you want, flights, hotels, food, restaurants, everything, right? The whole thing paid for one month. The other guy, very different deal, right? Says, okay, you have the next 40 years, and uh, anytime you want to go to Hawaii, flight is paid for, and you have a place to stay. Everything else, it's on you. Which of those two people is going to be more free to enjoy Hawaii in all of its fullness? Probably the second, right? Because there's not this pressure to, you got to do it now. you got to squeeze everything in and, and probably don't even sleep. If we believe right, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we're going to be more free from the circumstances, from the troubles, from the anxieties of this life because we have something more. Now, i, I got to be honest, this is, this is hard. This is really hard for me. It's not like I'm, I'm up here being like, I've got this figured out. <laughs> because look, bad circumstances, bad breaks in life, these things still will really get me down. And so I know, look, there's this perspective of faith that's out there that I should be living in, right? that's not grounded in that, but it's not, it's not easy to get there. Right? And that's why there is an infinite depth to believing Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Right? You can believe that, but it doesn't stop there. That, that we believe that we have this sort of relationship with God that's not bound up in our circumstances, that is in fact bigger and wider and realer and fuller than all of those things. Would you just pray with me that God would keep growing us, growing that belief more deeply into our lives.